Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, everyone, it's Reid. As you're listening to this, we are 48 weeks away from Election Day 2024. I know it seems like a long way away, but it's not. Now is the time, gang, to get involved. Join the union.us, linkinproject.us, or get involved with an organization in your community, guys. We cannot, cannot, cannot wait until the last minute to start this battle. Guys, we can, we must, and we will win, but only if we all work together. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Martin Pengeli, the Washington breaking news correspondent for The Guardian US. Martin was born in Leeds in the UK, where he played rugby for Durham University and Roslyn Park FC, and worked for Rugby News, The Guardian, and The Independent before moving to the US in 2012. Since then, he has written about politics, books, and rugby here in America. His work also is included in Sports Illustrated and The New York Times. He recently published his first book, Brotherhood, When West Point Rugby Went to War, which is now available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's joining me in studio from Washington, DC. Martin, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much indeed. I don't understand the game of rugby, but I do have some family ties. My best friend from growing up was a rugby player, and my first cousin, Pete, was a rugby player, and they happened to be buddies on the same rugby team in college, just by total happenstance. And my cousin's wife was also one of the top female rugby players in college when she was in school. So I've always been, at best, peripherally attached. The few rugby people I did hang out with at my cousin's wedding, let's just put it this way. The hangover just ended like last week, Martin, and that wedding, I think, was in 2000 or 2002. But tell us a little bit about the game and then about how you came to find the West Point rugby team. And, and obviously, guys, the West Point is the United States Military Academy at West Point in the Hudson River Valley, I believe, Martin, of New York State. But let me just, before I even let you answer your first question, sorry for the extended monologue, when I first saw the book, I thought you were talking about rugby players who played in World War II. And that gives you a sense of when I think about West Point and going to war, being a World War II buff, I go back to the 40s, when the truth is, is this covers really the class of 2002 and the 20 years worth of war we had up close. So just to give you a sense of when I first saw the cover, that's what I thought of. But give us the inspiration for the game and how you decided to write about this team. Well, the inspiration for the game, your lead in there is very, very appropriate, particularly for the American game. It's a game based in colleges and based in clubs that people play in after college, or it has been for 50, 60 years. It's been established. Junior school, high school rugby, younger than that, is now coming through. But it's very much a college game. I say briefly at the start of the book that rugby almost had its moment more than 100 years ago when football was becoming too violent and somewhat counterintuitively rugby was decided. In some schools, particularly on the West Coast, rugby was seen as something that might be more controllable. That moment didn't happen, so rugby stayed bubbling at a college level. And most people, or a lot of people in America, will know someone who played at college, will know a relative who played, a relative's wife, 
Uh, again, as you mentioned, with the hangover lasting from 2002, for a long time, rugby in colleges has been a drinking sport, or it's been a sport with a lot of partying, male and female. Women's rugby has been established here longest probably in any country in the world. Actually, the USA were the first Women's World Cup champions. It's very much been a social sport, which is the background of the team I, I found at West Point. How I found the team at West Point is very simple. I was, as you said again in the intro, I was playing for Rosslyn Park Football Club in London. Coincidentally, although not entirely coincidentally, a, an old established amateur club in England, the, at that point the top amateur team in England. I was playing in the, the second and third team. But we had very good contact, long established at Rosslyn Park with the British military. The Sandhurst British equivalent of West Point was not far down the road. We played them twice a year. We played combined services teams, things like that. And one day in March 2002, they, Sandhurst, I think, set up the game. They said, United States Military Academy from West Point, they're touring. They need a game to warm up to play us. Rosalind Park were literally jolly good chaps for a game. I think that must have been said somewhere. So we went down there. We didn't know anything. I was in the Emerging Players 15 at the time, which was one of the junior teams. We went down to a, the British military base sports ground at Aldershot, not knowing what we were going to find, and found a team of US military cadets. I now know, subsequently, 20 years later, obviously, almost all of them, all bar about three, were former football players, and the ones who weren't were largely wrestlers. So it was a ridiculously tough game. We won, but afterwards, mingled with the cadets in the bar, swapped mementos. My opposite number, who was a six foot eight offensive lineman, former army football player, who had dwarfed me. I'm six four and a bit, but no one in his height. He gave me a shot glass. We talked briefly. We went back to London. They went back off to where they were staying. The reason it, the game stuck in my head and has ended up 21 years later being a book is I was then working for Rugby News magazine trying to make my way in sports journalism in London. I was a self-serious young man. Aren't we all? Yes. Yes, I was. <laughs> I think I write in the book that I was trying to, I was trying to, I was telling myself I could write novels at the time while playing rugby. Sure. That's what I was doing. We've all had that dream too. We've yes. all had that dream. It didn't work. But the rugby one did because I went home and I wrote a diary entry about the game. Fairly brief, but just lodging the thought because that was march 2002 when everyone knew even though even though it was a year out everyone knew that the iraq war was going to come i just thought a simple thought i wonder what will happen to these guys i've played against i knew my opposite number was called brian i wrote that down it was nothing much more than that but then 10 years later and 10 years ago i moved to new york with my wife who's american from cambridge mass to work for the guardian in its new york newsroom on politics not on sport started writing about american rugby because i could because absolutely no one else was writing about it and after a couple of years writing myself in, I went up the, new, the Hudson River Valley in New York one day to West Point to meet the coach who was just retiring, who was the same coach they'd had, and simply ask him, find out if there was a story to be written about this 2002 players, what had happened to them. And I found, in the end, a profusion of stories. You can even say 15 stories, which is obviously a highly unwise thing to try and complete in a book. But the, the salient stories are now in book form. I've, I've spent eight years on and off in different forms trying to get the book done, and now it's done. Well, I, let me just say, before we talk about West Point and the team and the men, mostly men in the story, that, you know, if you want to take up poetry, you know, odes to nature and all that, or just the surroundings, your description of the trip from New York City up to West Point is really an ode to observation and expression. And I thought that that was important in that, you know, it's important in writing to show, not tell. And I think just that one brief passage of your trip up to West Point certainly was, I thought, an excellent exposition for you young writers out there, or even you old writers out there. 
So you get to West Point. I mean, you know, the long gray line, you know, the, I mean, look, it's Benedict Arnold surrendered it during the Revolutionary War, right? It's got a massive history. Um, in the 1800s, Robert E. Lee, you know, was at the top of the class. Ulysses S. Grant was near the bottom of his class. You know, the early 1900s, they, you know, there was a class, was it 1911 or 1912? They called it the class the stars fell on, and that was the likes of Patton and Eisenhower and those types. And so it has this long and rightfully storied history that really tracks America's best and worst times. And, you know, you talk about the discipline and beast, which is the sort of, you know, if you're a fraternity guy, you'd think of it as hell week, but at the beginning of your semester, not at the end. And it doesn't lead to more fun and games. It just leads to more and more hard work. So give us a sense of the atmosphere as you saw it, you know, and when you went up there to start working on this and in your mind, talking to both the players who were there now 20 years ago. What do you think has changed in the mindset, if you can answer this, it might be an unfair question, of the average cadet who in 2002 saw 9-11, knew war was coming, they prepared themselves for that. But 20 years on now, Martin, we've been, you know, there's been a lot of second lieutenants, first lieutenants, captains, field grade officers who've seen combat. Well, in terms of going up there, I was primed. You mentioned the description of the trip. I was primed for it by being a double history grad. My first degree is in history. My second's in history of art. I was a sucker for that trip up. And I'd also done a little bit of research before I went. I'd read what Charles Dickens said in 1842 about going up to West Point, the scenery and, and the trip. And I'd read some of the classic memoirs. So I'd read from the essays of James Salter, which I cite, through to eventually to David Lipsky, an absolutely American, and also Rick Atkinson on the, the Long Grey Line and so on. I'd read, I'd read in. And that didn't quite prepare me for when I actually got to the campus itself, which is a remarkable place. As you're saying, all the, all the history that's there, the weight of that history. I learned actually, as far as mindset goes, I learned later more about the switch. Actually from reading not just Lipsky, which David Lipsky from Rolling Stone was living there on 9-11. He lived there with the cadets for four years. He wrote the classic Absolutely American, which is indispensable. But there was another book which has been totally eclipsed by David Lipsky, written a couple of years before. It's called Duty First, and it's by Ed Ruggiero, who is a soldier, West Point professor, novelist, prolific writer, very good book. But it came out before 9-11. So it's about peacetime West Point. And it's about one of the grads it tracks goes to Kosovo to do some peacekeeping, which is also shown in, the, in Surviving West Point, the Discovery Channel documentary that was made in, in 0102. That was a good way for me to prepare to talk to my subjects about how they went in and how their, their lives changed on 9-11, which they did. Because they all, to varying degrees, went there for sports, free education and service probably for five years, they would have thought. not That would be too broad to say all of them did that. Some of them may have had long-term military ambitions, but they were by and large thinking in that way, see some peacekeeping, serve the country, do your thing, pay off the magnificent free education, which is what the captain calls it in the book and then go out. And on 9-11, that completely changed for them. So their, again, the book tracks this, their mindset, the team's mindset, not all of them, but most of them, was fairly, I guess for a lot, once for a better term, gung-ho in uh, the end of 01 and into 02. The hooker, Jim Gerbitz, hooker being a position, I always have to explain that. Jim Gerbitz was very much a sort of gung-ho guy, a very hardcore guy, determined to go infantry. I think eight or nine of them went infantry in the end went and fought different ways. Jim, as the book says, his career turned out slightly different thanks to a knee injury. 
they went on through some did come out after five years matt blinn the captain saw action in iraq then came out after five years went into the corporate world but some didn't some carried on two went into special forces did multiple tours so they had they had a very emblematic experience of the post 9-11 mindset now when you go up there which i did last week i went up for a legacy night for the current rugby team it's shifted again as you say one of the main differences in terms of the the nature and ethos of rugby that you mentioned is that of the current west point team who won their first army's first national championship in 2022 first time that's ever happened there was a point there's one conversation with Matt Sherman, the coach I had, where he pointed to a practice game going on and said, there's one player out there who was not recruited for rugby, which shows how the game is changing. So they're recruited players, they're recruited athletes, they have varsity status. They're much more, you couldn't say quite it's an inverse, but they flipped to being extremely serious about rugby, extremely serious about not partying. I would imagine because they've got a very, very strict spotlight on them being an NCAA sport. And as far as the going out into the army goes now, you probably have to, at the moment, head towards special forces or towards flying, I would imagine, to actually see action as such. That doesn't take away anything from the service. An army player was killed um, two weeks ago in a helicopter crash in the Mediterranean with where the carriers have been sent. It is still a dangerous thing to do. It's still a very, very, very serious thing to do. But yeah, it has... The atmosphere I wrote about, which carried on for years after 9-11, has kind of changed. It's an interesting way to think about it because... Just to go back to the historical perspective, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, even into the early 70s, World War II, then there's a break, not much of one before Korea, then there's a break, but we also have still have a draft, right? So there's just a massive military operation going on. Then Vietnam, eight, 10 years, right? And then you hit that early, and maybe it's a little bit analogous, Martin, whereas like, let's say the class of... 75, right, is probably looking forward to those sorts of things that you're talking about, which is the massive land war in Asia that was just chewing up men and officers, right, has come to an end for the most part. There are still forward deployed in Korea or wherever the case might, in Germany, uh, because it's still the Cold War. But the truth is, is that the chances of seeing actual combat, with the exception of Grenada, Panama, right, until the Gulf War, were probably pretty slim. And now, as you said, it's hot spots. It could be Syrians. It could be we're out of Afghanistan. We're out of Iraq. So you may have to go in. But to your point, the men who have always been the tip of the spear, SEALs, Special Forces, the Air Force, Special Forces, Marine Force, Recon, all those, like they're the ones who probably day in and day out are probably forward deployed and seeing some, and again, not, as you said, not to diminish the service of anyone, but in terms of Lying combat day in and day out, two or on, two or off, right? We're seeing this transition now. Yeah, absolutely. There's other changes in the in the rugby at West Point and the rugby mindset as well. The women's rugby was established there three years after the class I'm writing about. They the marvelous acronym WAR, Women's Army Rugby. Um, <laughs> they are very, very serious. They are perennial uh, national contenders or challengers. I think they more than the men have sent some more than one athlete to the Olympic training center in California. Now, that's another thing that's come in. Rugby's made the Olympics in the sevens, and Army is a very good place to obviously produce extraordinarily fit athletes who has to play sevens. So the place has definitely changed. You get the spectrum of opinions on service with these guys from O2. You get it when you talk to younger cadets. With these guys from O2, when for a couple of times during the book, one occasion in, 
uh, particular, there was a reunion staged in Cohasset, Massachusetts at the captain's house in summer 2021, partly for a reunion and partly to get me there to do some interviews and grab the guys I hadn't met in person. And that was a revelatory two days for me for understanding the military mindset, mostly fueled by beer. But beer helps. You know, beer and trust is, it really does help in reporting, I find. Well, so, there's that famous Latin saying, right? In biro veritas. So Yes, absolutely. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So let's talk about rugby as it relates and sport more broadly as it relates to preparation for military service. And there was one passage here that I highlighted. It said, quote, every person, despite their differences in size, ability, speed, whatever, they all have their jobs and you depend on them to do their job and they depend on you to do your job. I mean, that sounds very military. I mean, not if uh, sort of a, a good reminder for just any organizational dynamic. You and I have different skills, but it's some way they're going to fit into the patchwork of everything that's got to get done, but in the military even more so, and maybe in rugby too. Yeah. One of my favorite bits of uh, reading and research for the book, I, lo I love bringing this up, was uh, a British non-profit worker called Emma Sky, who was working in Iraq for Ray Odierno, eventually the commander of all the forces in Iraq. And she told, I think it's Tom Ricks who ended up blurbing me. She said, they were talking about the naming of operations and bases in Baghdad. And she said, you have to remember, the US armed forces don't do irony. It's actually fantastic because she was saying that, and it's true, if you look at Baghdad and the name of some of the bases, there's one that's called like Camp War Eagle and one called Camp Freedom. Freedom, War Eagle, Hope is another one. And the British would probably call them after like a dead dog they found by the side of the road or something because they're not really as invested in that. That was valuable to me in, in understanding the mindset, but it also came to mind when we're talking about what we're talking about, which is the use of rugby as training. At West Point, they, they're using rugby to train officers for ground combat. It's that simple. They mean it. And to, to an ironic British mind who treats rugby as a great game to play, a laugh of running out with your friends, you know, very serious when you get to the various levels I managed to sort of scrape into playing, like university first team stuff, county stuff, a couple of games in a professional club second team. It's very serious, but you're not using it to train yourself to fight ground combat for your country. And at West Point, they really are. Again, Tom Ricks pointed me to an amazing quote from a book that he cited about the ancient Romans, how they trained. It's in the book. Josephus, the historian, said it. It's, it's along the lines of, he would not be mistaken who described their exercises as bloody battles and their battles as bloody exercises. I think I've got that the right, right way around. I've contrasted that in the book to Mike Buddy, the current uh, athletics director at West Point, saying pretty much the same thing. He says, rugby is ground combat, except we get to keep score. And um, at the end, you don't carry away your dead and wounded. Well, you may carry away some because you may have to with the way rugby plays out. It's all about cohesion. It's all about playing for each other. It's all about the weak point is compensated by the strong point. It's all about not letting your fellow soldier down. Again, to cite the third source, as George Orwell said, serious sport is war minus the shooting, which it is. And this is an absolute distillation of it. And I found that fascinating to get into that. And once having realized that 
my sort of ironic flip take on it was irrelevant. It doesn't matter. That's just British. It was absolutely fascinating to read into that and to watch it and still to watch it in, in play these days. And so a couple of things that were a good reminder of the military, in particular, as you said, um, infantry combat. First of all, these players, as you said, the majority of them go into the infantry. They're 22. They're 22. I remember when I was a 22-year-old, Martin, I was not qualified, I'm not, and I still might not be, to do much more than like work at a convenience store. But here they are being charged with the lives of men and women in their command in combat zones. As you know, too, field grade officers, and we'll get to some of that in, you know, just sort of the, the irony of life that's weaved through all of this, too. You know, they have to go out and do this stuff like none of us can imagine, right? You've got to pick up a rifle. You're a platoon leader, right? Maybe you're a company commander as you get, you know, a little bit more advanced. But here you have, you know, whatever number of soldiers it is. And I've, I've been blessed to have a number of friends who were more in the Navy and the Marine Corps than the Army, but I was always struck by the seriousness with which they took the charge of being responsible for the lives of, of their soldiers and or their Marines. That's precisely it. The, the first proper chapter of the book after the foreword and um, introduction follows Matt Blinn, the captain and fullback, on his deployment to Iraq, to Mosul, and to just south of it, Hammam al-Alil, in 2004. And it ends up with the point in Mosul where things got hot in the Battle of Mosul for a week and describes his experiences there. But he he provided the photo, which we've printed on each chapter, has a photo trying to illustrate it. And he provided the photo, which is of Matt, I think in Hammam al-Alil, standing with a mortar in his hand. He's holding a great big mortar and he's smiling and he looks about five. I don't mean that derogatory to, to Matt. Matt was a, you know, a, a superb athlete at that point who'd come out of West Point for four years, Captain West Point, but he just looks so young. And there's a, there's a soldier standing behind him who looks even younger. And that yeah, really. I mean, the kid behind, just looking at the picture here, it's literally right at the beginning. The kid behind him at the time couldn't have been more than 18 or 19. Yeah, probably was 18 or 19. And that's what, that was another thing. There's points throughout the whole rise against this book, which, where it hit me, what I was, what I was talking about. The other salient one, I mean, they're all salient, but Jim Gerbitz, again, the hooker, central character in the book for a, a sad reason. Rugby wrecked his knee. Rugby sent him away from infantry, couldn't complete his dream. But he found purpose in convoy security, which is about sounds mundane and turns out, of course, in Iraq to be the most dangerous thing you could possibly do. So I interviewed as many members as I could find of the platoon he put together, a bunch of outsiders cut from other places, oddballs, they would say themselves, that he put together and formed into this security platoon, which eventually doing that job cost him his life. And that you're thinking again there that this is a bitterly disappointed 23-year-old, 24-year-old who has seen his army career wrecked and then has this chance to re-resurrect it. And according to all his men and the women who served with him, who I talked to, did such an incredible job of it, age 24, while embittered, while disappointed, while delayed doing what he wanted to do and still did it. It's tremendously impressive. What do you think is the percentage? It's an unfair question, Martin. What is the percentage of something like a Jim Gerbitz whose leadership ability is innate versus what he learned at West Point? He would be an interesting character study in that sense, because Jim, along with a guy called Clint Alienik, they were two best friends. They were right in the middle of the group. There's a couple of other, as I've described them, big dogs, because I was doing a, a study of sort of group dynamics, seeing how they came together. Jim was a real 
I use this word all the time because I love it. Um, it comes from Philip Roth. He was a real rugby berserker, if you put it that way. His sister described his attitude to, to classwork and to athletics at high school as balls to the wall all the way. Uh, his coach at high school said he had the dirtiest uniform at the end of every training session and he would lead extra training after defeats, partying after wins. He took that to West Point. He very soon dropped out of football because he wasn't big enough and he was a big guy. Uh, and he found rugby through Clint. And the two of them played four years of rugby, which is relatively rare. Most people come after one or two years or did then. And seeing Jim as a leader and whether what's innate and what's not, I'm not sure I could answer that about innate leadership in him. There's some stuff in, there's a couple of scenes in high school of, of him leading people around after I think a bomb threat was called in that one of his friends told me about. But his sheer force of personality is what West Point identified and channeled, I think. And some younger cadets told me on and off record about how they would avoid him at training sessions. It's like, go nowhere near Jim Gerbitz. And I know that kind of figure from playing at Durham University particularly and playing at Rosslyn Park. At Durham University, we had a couple of front row players, front row being where Hooker and Props play, the big, the sort of suicidally dangerous hard place to play. We had a couple of internationals, one who ended up playing England B and one who ended up playing for the USA, actually. And when I was a freshman second row, quite good, I was sort of being promoted up, but not really, you know, two years younger than them, three years younger than them. I just stayed the hell away from them at training. And as soon as I learned about Jim and Clint, I thought, yeah, I'd stay away, the hell away from them. And I'd, go in, I'd do anything they told me on the field. I'd follow them everywhere. And in training, I would be very keen not to be anywhere near them. And a few players said a similar thing. But Clint and Jim both developed into, by all accounts, good infantry leaders, really hard guys who would not ask their men to do anything they didn't do and would go to coin the phrase from Jim's high school days to use the phrase, balls to the wall. I think it's also interesting. I, I'd be curious about this because just as an aside, you know, the, uh, the miniseries on HBO Band of Brothers, I think, debuted, I think, on September 9th or maybe 10th. And some of these guys would watch this religiously. And of course, obviously, Dick Winters you know, in the book by Ambrose and then in the story played by Damian Lewis brilliantly, is the infantry officer, if you had to serve in a line company, you'd want as your CO, right? And I'm curious if in some ways, some of these soon to be soldiers at the time saw something like that. I said, you know what, like, this is how it's supposed to be. I wonder maybe if art informed life a little bit. Yeah, I think that they absolutely did. They they say in the book, various ones, and they, they watched Band of Brothers religiously. They had it on loop on their coach when they came to Europe to play us when they went to Normandy. The one of the team who I can think might have been closest to a Dick Winters character was a guy called Zach Miller from far western Pennsylvania, a big guy. There's a great story from one of his best friends in the book about taking him to a party at home in New Jersey somewhere and being asked, because Zach was huge with great big shoulders and a big deep voice. Jay, his friend, being asked literally, who's the meathead? You mean the meathead who ended up being the Rhodes Scholar? Yeah. Is that Jay, the one you're Jay talking about? <laughs> precisely that. Oh, that's no meathead. You don't know about that guy. Um, there's video footage of Zach from the a bicentennial event talking to Anderson Cooper, towering over him, big booming voice, and telling him that the most challenging thing he'd done as a Rhodes Scholar, a Truman Scholar as well, was fine. And, and may I just read this passage about uh, Zach? Quote, the most extraordinary student I have encountered during 10 years of undergraduate teaching a natural leader, not in the least self-absorbed, who puts me in mind of scholars like Descartes. He also noted that Miller, quote, would often appear in class after a weekend's rugby tournament with spectacular bruises and cuts. Sort of a warrior poet. Yeah, who wanted to be, openly wanted to be a senator and perhaps president, and was regularly 
thought of that way. I mean, it occurs to me now, he would have, I'm talking about Zach in the past tense because Zach died, he would now have been very likely a contender for the Republican nomination, I guess. I'm guessing there about his affiliation, but certainly as an old-style Republican nomination in Pennsylvania for that race. But let's talk about Zach and, you know, some of the other characters, Clint, you mentioned, who made it further but is no longer with us also, is that Zach died in training, in ranger training. He never made it to combat. He never made it to Oxford. And it's a good reminder, and I know from one of my best friends, you know, he was lucky enough to get all his Marines through combat in places like Fallujah and lost a number of them when their Humvee flipped over, right? And so, you know, whether or not it's in the, in the woods or it's on a road in, you know, outside of Baghdad or if it's in a lake in Texas, sometimes life isn't fair and your number's up and it doesn't make any sense. And there's a guy like Zach Miller who has all of this talent to offer the world. And the next thing you know, he's pushing himself so hard and the systems in place at the time weren't there for him. Yep. Reconstructing what happened to Zach. You mentioned the lake in Texas, what happened to Joe Emai and what happened in Baghdad to Jim. It's obviously the hardest work of the book. In Zach's case, he died of heat exhaustion um, in pre-ranger school, actually. He was training for ranger school. There's, there was an absolutely intractable historical question of why he didn't make it straight into ranger school. It's something to do with failing sit-ups or press-ups. Nobody can quite say which one it is. Which appear to be a fairly, if not completely subjective decision based on the cadre there, right? Whether they just decided they didn't want to give it to you. Absolutely. I, I went to, for advice on this, to two veterans and writers who went through ranger school. Um, Andrew Exum, who formerly wrote for The Atlantic, wrote a book called This Man's Army and is a rugby fan, a big rugby fan. And Craig Mullaney, who was a, a road scholar two years before Zach and did what Zach was trying to do. He, he got through ranger school first so he could go to Oxford and come back and not have to do it after two years softening up at Oxford. It's totally subjective. The trainers, the cadre are unfair. That's the point. Zach failed something, as did two other lieutenants he was with. They went off into pre-ranger. And then the pre-ranger experience, it's a remarkable cataloging of a, a number of small things going wrong and all just adding up. There's a number of small reverses over a few very hot days in ranger school that even then should not have added up to Zach, not coming back from land navigation, not being found immediately, and then being found dead. But he was. He was found out on, on the ranger, pre-ranger school land navigation course, died of heat exhaustion. It's a remarkable, as you say, reminder of you're writing a book about war, and this was just preparation for war. In a way, it was preparation for preparation for war. and a remarkable, awful series of accidents occurred and, and Zach Miller w died at the age of 22. Right. And then, you know, another one where, again, life just comes is, uh, how do you say his last name? Imai? Imai. Joe Imai is from California. He's down in Texas on a lake on a speedboat and just sort of as a joke, jumps off the edge into the lake, never comes back up. Eddie Johnson, who was the only person who saw him jump because the two guys in the front of the boat didn't see it. One of them was driving, the other one was looking ahead. Eddie said to me, he just thought, I think the quote was in there, it's like, it's Joey, quit f***ing around. You know, taps, without much urgency, taps the guy and the driver of the boat on, on the boat, says, turn around, we got to get Joey. And he just didn't come up. He had a lot of beer at the time, which would have contributed to it. But it was just, a, it's a, the randomness and the cruelty of fate is staggering and Talking again then to, to Eddie, who saw the whole thing, 
but also, of course, to George, Joey's dad, and to Marianne, his sister, his surviving relatives. It's hard to fathom, apart from the sheer randomness of it, the way that happened, the way just Joey just decided to jump for a joke and that was that. It's not, not easy reporting at all when you're going, you've started a book based on rugby and you're going into these areas. Well, no, and so let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you, you spent a lot of time with the players, obviously, you know, some time after their graduation, after their service in some cases, and you spent a fair amount of time or maybe a lot of time with the families. So give us a sense of, you know, what those families felt as they, you know, heard Zach wasn't coming back from pre-ranger chaining or Jim, who, to your point, I think, you know, given, and, and I want to I want to come back to this, but given the proliferation, and I think that is the right word, Martin, of IEDs, you know, improvised explosive devices, which could have been any number of things and got more lethal as the war went on. Convoy duty was probably the most dangerous duty there had to be on a day-to-day basis. So how did the families feel when they got this news? You, you, you illustrate the, we've all seen it in cinema, of the car pulling up to the drive. So give us a little sense of that as you talk to these folks. Well, there's 10 years after Jim died and up to 20 years after Zach died and Joey died. The process of a, of a journalist turning up to ask you questions about this obviously brings the whole thing back. So it, it, there's resurfaced anger in all three cases. There's anger in, in Zach's case at how it could have been allowed to happen. I've seen, thanks to Zach's parents, the Millers, I've, I've seen the Army, the Ranger School report, which detailed all these little mistakes and the, and the various things they were going to do afterwards and did do to change the way the course was run. In Joey's case, there's anger and disbelief that he could have done that, that he did. And Eddie was very brave talking to me because he saw his friend jump and then had to be with Joe's dad, George, while they were combing the lake for a day. And in Jim's case, it it spreads out further and further because I should definitely say there's Jim's parents, Ken and Helen, who I engage with them very closely, lots of interviews. They are wonderful, warm Jersey Shore people. In a way, in that case, I didn't have to do the most wrenching conversation there because Ken did it for a Rutgers oral history project about 10 years ago, I think, which I found just in my travels on the web. But the in Jim Gerbis's case, the ripples go out. I mean, all, all the ripples of all deaths go out further. In, Jim, in Jim's case, he was married. He had his widow, Tori, who is extensively interviewed for the book, his sister, Kathy, but also his men, the survivors. And among his men, it's, it's very important not to forget that another man died in that convoy, Dustin Yancey, the driver of the first Humvee, who was a guy from South Carolina. He died on the operating table. There's some conjecture about whether Jim died on the road or the operating table, which becomes a, a thing in the book. I mean, a, a, a literal explanation of the fog of war almost. Yes. And the, the reconstructing that incident through the fog of war was difficult traumatic for the guys who were calling it for me and they did they went to some very dark places one of them zach palmer the driver who was next to jim and whose hand was injured he was also the medic and his hand was injured so he couldn't treat jim straight away he was doing his uh, post round in florida when i tracked him down and talked to him and he paused the round to cry and paused the interview to cry and it, it, it's as a lifelong editor and politics writer so not a door knocker not a reporter on familial grief which in a classic fleet street education as a reporter you would you'd know how to do it i'm not that and so this was raw repeatedly and i felt pushed to carry on and doing it to tell the story properly but also to do all these guys justice 
and I hope I did it. With Jim's platoon, I think I talked to five of them, two of whom were in the Humvee with him, one Alejandro Michel, who was the sergeant in the first Humvee who was, who was hit, and two guys who came up from behind to reconstruct as best I could what had happened. It's not the definitive version. The players have told me there's loads of stuff in the book they didn't know. <laughs> it's just, it goes off in all directions. I didn't get the army report on what happened to Jim. I went through freedom of information processes, got two steps on, but never got it. It's very possible it could pop into my inbox any day, which might change what we do. It also may never do. It's almost certainly just bureaucracy. It's not a cover-up. But- well, and I want to get to that in a second, the, the army as an organization. But I mean, so, you know, we talked about Band of Brothers, right? We few, we happy few. Shakespeare's Henry V, right? Um, my favorite rendition of it happens to be Kenneth Branagh, but I'm sure everybody has their own. But, you know, you, you referenced uh, Sebastian Younger, who, who I've interviewed as well, about this brotherhood. And I, and I don't want to leave out, you know, all the women that now serve uh, and sisterhood as well of something that really nothing other than probably combat can really create. I've been very keen to say, brother, that, you know, this book in future could be called Sisterhood, the way combat roles have changed and the way rugby has changed as well. Um, Sebastian Younger's work in three books, War, Tribe and Freedom, was incredibly influential for me. I've, I've been lucky enough to interview Sebastian a couple of times, meet him, including interviewing him about Cormac McCarthy after Cormac McCarthy died, which was oh. a sort of, well, yeah. You know. We could do it. Listen, we'll get the three of us together. We'll do nothing but two hours on Cormac McCarthy. I know. That was like fantasy journalism when I got to do that, do that piece. Sebastian's work, particularly Tribe, because it talks back and forward to the other two books around it, really informed, informed what I was doing. There's a point where Mo Green, the fly half, who's one of the absolute He's a kind of an alpha male in within the group of alpha males, but he's he's he went special forces, finished fourth in his class at West Point, went special forces, was so far as I understand, really one of the trigger pullers. Mo says, I was asking Mo, what did you find in your in rugby at West Point? How did you live with it? And he he described how he was a bit iconoclastic towards West Point, towards all the official strictures, towards the discipline. He said rugby gave him an out for that, but he said in rugby I found my tribe. That was it. It's my tribe. It was a bunch of guys who I could play with, exhaust myself with, train with, drink with. None of them are actually, none of them get carried away. There's, there's another very good book that I read in, in doing this called um, Red Platoon by Clinton Ramisha, who fought in the battle that became the subject of the movie The Outpost, which was based on Jake Tapper's book on the same battle, Cop Keating in Afghanistan. Clinton Ramisha just came out with a paragraph, which I took in full and, and quoted in the book about how Band of Brothers particularly, and Henry V, have created this expectation that everybody in a platoon, everybody in a team, everybody in a squad will be brothers and work perfectly together. And of course, that's not true. In any group, there are people who don't fit in. There are people who are slightly outside it. There are people who don't operate as purely in the interest of the platoon as you'd want. Everyone's human. And brothers can have, I mean, I don't have one, but brothers can fight as roughly and as awfully with one another as anybody, maybe more. Yeah, I have two. I played rugby with them at high school and we, we, we had our fair share of scraps. That Clinton Ramisha passage was as vital to understanding the brotherhood as the sort of more idealistic descriptions around Band of Brothers, the TV series, but not in the series itself. That's a very realistic series in terms of the people who don't fit in or the, or the, the problems within it. Um, and Younger, Sebastian Younger, to go back to him, is the same. Sebastian Younger's Restrepo, the film, and War, the book, are just, they're unapproachable for as reportage goes. I mean, 
obviously one thing I wasn't going to do and didn't do was would be to go to Baghdad because Americans had left by then, but also I write politics every day, so I wasn't going to do it. So I was relying on that kind of reportage and his work on men in combat and men when they come home from combat is, I think, unsurpassed. Well, and just broadly speaking, for all the men and women who have served and are serving, and especially those who have had real live close quarters combat experience too, as you know, Martin, I can't speak for the UK, but in the US, we often do not do nearly right enough by them when they get home. And I always think about the movie, The Hurt Locker. Jeremy Renner plays a bomb disposal tech. And to me, this is why, Martin, some directors are just incredible because they can tell a story in three seconds. And it's when Renner's character has come home from Iraq and his wife sends him to the grocery store to get cereal. And Catherine Bigelow, who I believe directed it, has this long shot of the cereal aisle. And it's 800 kinds of cereal in every color, shape, everything else. And Renner's character just looks at it completely helpless as to what to do. And the next scene is him back in the suit in Iraq, which is the rhythm, such as it is and as lethal as it can be, of combat, of military life, of purpose, of brotherhood, of sisterhood is one thing. Coming home now saying, first, what am I supposed to do with myself? And second, Martin, whatever compares to that. I mean, yeah, you can go play rugby. You know, you can have some outlet. You know, I saw I saw a story the other day that many sort of ultra athletes, right, ultra marathoners, all this stuff have some history of trauma in their lives, and this is how they sort of account for it. But, you know, it's one of those things. And I, I'd be curious to see as you talk to many of these men, mostly men who were officers who, you know, came home, do you get a sense that they have adjusted or do, was there a sense of adjustment that you could discern? I mean, you said one of them went into corporate America. It's probably not unusual for a high-performing West Point grad, former infantry officer. But what's your sense of how they readjusted after that? I think one or two had problems readjusting. I mean, it's not in the book because the book doesn't go that far. You know, David Finkel of the Washington Post wrote the brilliant book, um, The Good Soldiers, about Rustemeyer, which I use and because that's where Jim was. And then he wrote Thank You for Your Service about what happened to those soldiers, the survivors, when they came home. That would potentially be another project for me to do. I think, in a very general sense, it wasn't easy for some. In the, the most direct expression of this that's in the book is Jim Gerbitz coming home on leave not long before he went back to Iraq and was killed. And Tory talks about driving around Savannah with him and him being transfixed on every single bit of garbage by the side of the road. Because that's, as Eric Stanborough says in the book, another rugby player, that's what you were looking for when you're on IED clearance or when you're on convoy route. So when Jim was driving to the supermarket, to the cereal aisle, he was tense. He was looking, for, looking at the side of the road. He couldn't stop scanning for, for danger. There is actually, there's an ancillary tale, which you mentioned at the start of the conversation, the, the look of the book, the rugby ball with the dog tags, which an author friend of mine, Charles Kaiser, I'll name drop him because he's, he's been valuable for advice told me in the right while I was in the writing is like look, one of your first battles forget everything you're trying to do to finish the narrative you are you going to get a good cover because your book has to look good if you don't like the way your book looks you're going to have a problem and Godine played an absolute blinder with the cover it's a remarkable image that image of a rugby ball with dog tags which if readers look closely it's Jim Gerbis's tags it was thought of by the warehouse manager at Godine, the publisher up in New Hampshire, 
Dylan Gray, a retired sergeant. Two tours, I think. Multiple tours to Iraq. And he thought of that. And Dylan's didn't know rugby from anything. By his own account, not much of a reader. But he, this project came on board and he said, hey, what about a rugby ball? Muddy it up. And some tags. He couldn't have hit it better. And in talking to Dylan about his experience of reading the book, about guys he didn't know, a sport he doesn't know, guys younger than him, has been really educational for how Dylan, what it did to Dylan to read the book. Especially, obviously, the final four chapters about the convoy. It's been very telling. And he's been very, very kind, very effusive about it. But just seeing his experience as someone who came to this with that side of experience and having come home from it was really, really educational for me. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Let me zoom out for a second to the Army as an institution. There are a couple of reminders in here, and there have been numerous books written about the lead up to the Iraq War and the war itself, but you provide a lot of reminding, Martin, that for all of the United States military, their ability, the Army's ability to be the finest fighting force and the most lethal fighting force probably humanity has ever known, it can fight a war better than anybody. The problem comes when they're trying to hold a peace. And oftentimes that's not the Army's fault. That's not the general's fault. That's not the colonel's fault. That's not the lieutenant's or the sergeant's or the private's or the specialist's fault. And then, so they go into this with unarmored Humvees, right? And then as soon as, you know, Bremer fires the army, he fires all the civil servants. Now there's a bunch of guys out of work with guns and everything at their disposal. And now, you know, artillery shells start to be planted, right? And the mm, innovation that these guys came up with on how to kill American soldiers didn't stop throughout the war. And it went from an artillery shell to basically a shaped metal charge that became molten in air and then it just cut through a Humvee like butter. And, you know, it wasn't until they came up with MRAPs and everything else, you know, that were shaped in a certain way underneath to deflect the blast. Um, but, you know, a lot of this is sort of hillbilly armor, right? They put a, you know, half inch steel sheet on the floor, but you saw that too in World War II, right? They put sandbags someplace because, and it never fails to shock and disappoint me and sometimes infuriate Martin. That, you know, you, there's that old expression that I really dislike, which is you go to war with the army you have. Yes, but isn't it somebody's job to figure out what that army might need before you send them there? Yeah, it is. Every player's experience was that, was the experience of trying to deal with the fight won, what next, don't have the right things, 
don't have the right guidance. Sometimes did have the right guidance and were, and were practicing, particularly the guys who, who served up around Mosul when Petraeus was in charge doing counterinsurgency. They had the right approach. They did their best. Um, Mo Green tells a story. He tells one story of being lucky that he's small because he could fit in the Humvee with all the sandbags they had to put on the floor because they weren't properly armored. He tells another story of a commanding officer wanting to put glass windows in their HQ so it didn't look like a bunker, whereupon when there was a car bomb, those windows shattered and lots of injuries came from the shattering glass. It's that sort of push and pull between trying to govern and trying to be an, an effective fighting force. Mo and the guys up in Mosul had a better time of it, perhaps, than others because of that approach that Petraeus had then. But then Petraeus was pulled away. Well, also more like, more what I'm going to call friendly locals, yeah, right? The Kurds, the Kurds were, are more friendly. Because the Kurds had been massacred by Saddam, so they were yeah, friendly and, and more, very, more friendly, More I guess. friendly and very good fighters. But then when Petraeus pulls out to Fallujah, because Fallujah kicks off, Insurgents come up to Mosul and Mosul kicks off and you have Matt Blind, young Matt Blind in, in the uh, hatch of his striker going through Mosul in his first day in battle, wondering what on earth's going on. That's classic fog of war stuff. But the, you know, we've touched on this as well. The lack of preparation, the lack of equipment really comes down to this is well expressed in this story of convoy security and Jim Gerbitz and top flight from um, 26th Forward Support, 3rd Infantry Division. That's a ramshackle group of people with some Humvees, which had guns on. That's kind of it. They described, two or three of them described the training they had from Jim before they went in country, and then when they got to Kuwait and his way of shaping them into a reasonable security platoon. But the, the training they got when they took over from, I think it was 2nd Cav, was a left seat, right seat drive. So one drive with the people you're replacing, where you go around this route in Baghdad where you've never been. And you're told, watch out for that. There's a gap in the barrier. That's that. Here's a place where we always have to watch out. Right, you're done. See you. That's it for these 23, 24-year-old guys who are not in MRAPs, the big cougar and buffalo things. That's expressed through Eric Stan. Eric Stanborough is a guy I happened upon. He's a 2004 West Point grad who played rugby with these guys, so I found him. He's army engineer. He spent a year north of Baghdad on route clearance in using armored personnel carriers, which are the same ones they've been using since Vietnam. I mean, literally, you go back to a bright, shining lie by with about John Paul Van, and he's you know he's in, he's in a plane somewhere and he's yelling at Vietnamese officers in in one thirteens. I mean, that's that was nineteen sixty five, I think. Yeah, I was staggered when I found out those things were that old. But again, in in researching that chapter, I found a Patrick Coburn reported piece from the Independent Mile paper about going out with the engineers with the sappers and watching them look for IEDs in the road by basically probing the road with metal rods. Right. Titanium rods because they're not magnetic. Titanium rods, yeah. So it's like, it's just a remarkable and chilling story of how all these soldiers in a different ways tried to cope. And as you said in the question, how they were forced to try to cope because there's no planning for the after. I don't go into the politics of the Iraq war in the book. I mean, I give pointers, like you said, to how the road to war progressed and, and obviously how these conditions came about. But I don't, I don't go into the right and wrong. I didn't really go in to it with the players much because they all gave me the same answer right or wrong yes no i had my men to look after they're west pointers i realized very soon when i started the reporting eight years ago as a guardian reporter that was one of the, the questions i had i realized quite soon that i could drop it because this was a human story it's not a politics story the iraq war you know the political side the blame for all this is a whole genre of books that's not what this is this is the story of the guys on the ground on the ground trying to cope well, it is a fabulous story. 
and narrative about these men, mo- again, mostly men. And there are plenty of, I would say, incredibly strong women featured throughout as well, Martin. All right. So if I may, let's fast forward to your day job. So tell us, Martin Pengeli, what does the world look like to you as a political reporter? <laughs> it looks like full on insanity every day. I moved down to Washington to become breaking news, Washington breaking news correspondent this summer. Brought my family down. I've spent, it's the nature of the job, I've spent most of my time at my desk because there's so much stuff to keep up with. I've been to the Capitol and the White House, sure. I'm not there every day chasing down stories with an organization the size of The Guardian. I'm at my desk chasing down some political books, uh, grab hold of those, but otherwise just trying to drink the fire hose. Yeah, I mean, there are things that, We've all been through, you know, in any amount of time, not only as people who are engrossed or involved in American politics on a regular basis, but also just as Americans, where there are things that used to happen that would be a scandal, right, for days, weeks, months, years, that now just sort of, you know, go on. You know, I saw this story, it was a, not to mention a rival, but a New York Times headline about, you know, Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, and, you know, Questions arise about what Trump might do with, you know, his pardon power in a second term. Like, what the hell do you think he's going to do with his pardon power? Like, you needed a whole news story to write about this? Like, what were you thinking? Like, everybody knows what the hell he's going to do. He did it. If he wasn't worried about getting in more trouble before he left office the first time, he would have done more of it. And so I just I guess my question is, like, how do you take something like that where it's like this should be a scandal and not downplay it as I've just done, because my opinion is everybody should know that, but also like make it, you, you, you've used the word salient. How do you make the insanity salient for readers? Well, we have an advantage at The Guardian, even it's Guardian US, but we're tied to a Fleet Street paper. Obviously, we're part of it. And at Fleet Street, no one minds if you have a point of view. We'll report everything accurately. We won't make stuff up, but our headlines will be pointed. And our story selection will be pointed. The Guardian is a liberal paper. So in terms of making things salient, I am quite often showing my readers the bad thing and saying, here it is. It's the bad thing. There is a, there's a certain latitude for a bit of editorializing in our copy but, uh, a lot of the time. So, But let me, let me ask you that as someone who's been a reporter for a long time, because Stuart Stevens, one of our senior advisors, said, you know, the thing that's frustrated him about political media coverage is that, you know, they're all bound and determined, not all, but many are bound and determined to show that they are somehow, quote, objective. Stewart's question is, okay, but how do you tell both sides of a lie? I mean, in our case, we just say it's a lie. We can do it. It's an advantage we have. And there's a million advantages the Times and the Post have over us, including, you know, in, in terms of depth of resource, brilliance of reporting skill and, and so forth. I wouldn't say we're, we can't compete with them every day. There's no point trying to say we are, but we just say it's a lie. We've said Trump lies about electoral fraud for as long as he's been lying about it because he lies we don't have to go into calling it a false claim or a falsehood or saying trying to say why he says it we just it's a lie and it's quite refreshing to be able to do that for us it's refreshing for us to point to things like threats to abortion rights and just say that's just a threat to to the right to abortion that's a threat to freedoms that should be guaranteed we can do it there's an editorializing edge in pretty much everything we do as a british paper as there would be and as as there is in some form, for a, a British organization or a British origin organization like the Mail from the other side of the spectrum. They will do the same thing. We, The Guardian will definitely, we will claim we're not as scurrilous as the Mail, for example, can be sometimes. But 
we are serving liberal readers around the world. That's our aim, while being determined to be objective about the truth. Right. So I, you know, well, in the again, best, it's it's a shame that you and I have to spend seven minutes talking about objective truth in journalism. But here we are. All right. Before we let you go, where can we find your work, and where can we find you online if you still dare to tread social media? You can find me at the Guardian, Martin Pengelly, my author author page. You can find me in I still call it Twitter. Guardian Style Guide still calls it Twitter. I'm at Martin Pengelly. I'm on Threads, same thing at Martin Pengelly. I'm on Facebook, where I've got a I'm keeping going a Facebook group on the book, which is proving to be very useful for putting a community together of army rugby players, army people, readers, and also a good way to keep talking about these players and keep sourcing material. If it goes to a, it's gone to a second printing. If it goes to a paperback, I've got, I've learned more since it came out because I've met people. I found new sources, uh, new conversations. So go to Facebook, look for Brotherhood when West Point Rugby went to war. There's an open group to join and it's, that's where it is. All right. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and on Substack at the home front. Again, everybody, the book is Brotherhood When West Point Rugby Went to War. Martin Pengali, thanks for joining me. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.